studying the book of Genesis chapter 13. We are continuing from where we left in chapter 13, dealing with the issue of Abram and Lot in their separation. And we know that after Abram returned from Egypt in his attempt to try to avoid the famine, we know the famine that God himself had caused as a, as something to test Abraham, to strengthen his faith. Of course he failed, but we all do at points in time and God strengthened his faith and brought him back, delivered him back into the land out of the hand. That is his wife, Sarah, out of the hand of the Pharaoh. So he came back into the land and what we basically find is that they were very wealthy. That is Abram and Lot. And now we see the emphasis was being placed upon Lot as well, because as we move through the narrative, there's going to be an issue between uh, the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram because of a lack of resources. And the idea that you have to remember is this, even though Abram is in the promised land, even though he's in the promised land, the Canaanites are still the basic inhabitants of the promised land. They are there. They are inhabiting all of the cities and most of the surrounding areas. So basically only the outlying areas we see Abram has. So therefore, Abram is a very wealthy man. Lot is a wealthy man. And when they go out to try to get their herds to graze and things of that nature, it begins to create naturally a clash because of the limitation of resources. So Abraham acted in a great way and said simply to his nephew Lot. And what you have to remember is Abram is the authority figure in the relationship because he is the eldest. And that's basically the custom of the time, custom of the day. He's also Lot's uncle. It was Lot who went with Abram to the promise when Abram left uh, the land of his fathers. So nevertheless, Abram has the authority, but nevertheless, he acts very graciously in allowing Lot to choose for himself. Now, what Lot does is he looks towards the region of Zor. He looks toward the region of what is Sodom and Gomorrah. And he saw those plains were very lush. And he thought for himself monetarily that it would be a benefit to him. And so therefore he chose that area for himself because Abram told him simply, whichever way you go, I'll go in the opposite direction because we don't need to fight because we, we are brothers. So Lot chose that, but then there was this eerie statement that the scripture made. And it also sets us up for what will happen later on in the scripture. We know Genesis 18, 19, Concerning Sodom, that the men of Sodom were very wicked before the Lord. Now, the Bible didn't talk about that particular wickedness at this time. It will. But nevertheless, it lets us know that this was the occasion. And what it seems to suggest is that Lot also was somewhat aware on some level or another, on the surface, maybe possibly, that these men were. We're wicked, but nevertheless, he is choosing what? He is choosing physical comfort over spirituality. All right. Nevertheless. So now let's continue because we basically stopped at that point. All right. 
And one of the reasons why it was good for us to stop at that point, because when we get into this particular section, I want to talk about a particular principle that is spoken of early in the scripture in an indirect manner. All right. But nevertheless, we'll get to all of that when we come to it. So let's continue in Genesis 13. And we're going to start again in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Now, what we basically have is what? The Abrahamic promise being restated. And that's very, if you can recall, that's what happened in chapter 12, when God basically promised him this particular land, this descendants, his descendants, this particular land. I don't want to get ahead of myself. This particular land, if Abraham would go obey it and leave. All right. But let's just go to it. What is interesting to note again is verse 14. Let's take it apart a piece at a time that the Lord spoke to Abram after Lot separated from him, which means that it's not so much as we, we take that to mean spiritually. So not so much that God was desirous of this argument between Abram and Lot and, and their, uh, 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 their herdsmen. That's not what, that's not the issue. But the point is, although Lot did come with Abram, God only made that promise to Abram. So now we see God reiterating that promise to Abram alone, alone. Why? Because the promised land, the land of Canaan was not supposed to be in, in any way divided up to Abram and Lot, the promised land, all of it was to be given to Abram's descendants. So that's the whole key is to be given to Abram's descendants, who we know will become later on the Jewish people. And so Lot, by removing Lot out of the picture, we, we take away any type of competitiveness or any arguments that could actually come about. Because notice, that's exactly what took place. Arguments concerning related to the promised land. So now that Lot is gone, it's almost as if to say God is saying good because that's what I wanted in the first place. All right. But let's continue on because we want to deal with a particular principle in this passage. So he promises. So he says to him, verse 14, once again, look all around the promised land. That's why it says north, south, east, and west. But 15 is where we now want to concentrate our attention for all the land that you see, the promised land. I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. All right. What is now the promise that he made? God expands that particular promise. What do you mean? Notice earlier chapter 12, when God initially made the promise to Abraham, he said to Abraham, I will give this land to your descendants. But now in verse 15, he, he, um, not so much as amended, he expands it 
the promise. He said, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Now, here is where I want to take my time to explain a few things of notable importance. Now, it includes Abraham as well as his descendants. What's important about that? Well, here, here's what's important about that. Later on in the passage of time, we're going to see where Sarah, Abram's wife, will die. I think it's probably about 127 years old, something to that effect. I'm not quite sure. But his wife dies. And in order to bury his wife, Abram, Abram needs a burial place. So he goes to the sons of Heth and he bargains for a cave. And that's basically where he wants to bury her. In this plot of land, uh, this cave of Machpelah. And so Abram buys this cave of Machpelah in this land plot. And by the time that Abraham, Abraham himself dies at 175 years old, here's what you got to catch, guys. The only thing that Abraham owns, remember, and, the, and just in case you guys are missing it, the cave of Machpelah is in the promised land, okay? But the only thing that Abraham owns by the time he himself dies is that cave. He owns nothing else. In other words, notice what God is saying to him here. Look around you in all of the promised land. And that is basically what we call the land of Israel. It's, it's not a huge comparative, huge place territorially comparative, say, for instance, to like the United States. But nevertheless, nevertheless, to Abram himself at the time, it's a huge piece of land. It's a huge piece of land. He owns and controls none of it. None of it is his. Okay. So when he dies at 175 years old, he does not have this land. He doesn't have the promise. So here's the point. Now, verse 15, God says, what? I will give this land to you. Now, how is it that God is going to give the land of promise to a dead man? And that is the issue. That is the principal issue that we need to deal with at this time. If Abraham died and all he possessed, all he possessed was the cave of Machpelah. But nevertheless, God promised him the entire land of Canaan along with his descendants. Then how do we deal with that? Did God lie? Is there a contradiction in the scripture? And that is what brings us to our, one of our first principles in scripture that deals with the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the dead. And we'll see that understood. And I don't want to get into it. I don't want to be premature. So let me just take, take my time, walk you through it. The principle of resurrection of the dead is derived. In other words, okay, let me slow down. Their resurrection of the dead is not directly stated until we get to certain prophets. Say, for instance, Isaiah is stated in the book of Daniel is stated in the book of Job. OK, those where it's directly stated about resurrection of the dead. Now, I tell you what, guys, I, I, let me just teach you about this stuff on this. So 
And notice that's in the book of Job, the poetic books of the Bible, all right? That's what we call it. And Isaiah, uh, um, the, these are the books of the prophets. The book of Daniel, considered basically historical by the Jews, okay? We consider them prophetic books. But nevertheless, these particular books, because they were not of the foundational books of the Bible, that is the first five books, the books of Moses, the books of what? The books of Moses. When we get to the New Testament time, remember the scriptures talked about a certain group of people called the Sadducees and the Sadducees did not believe in spirits nor angels. And most importantly, what? The resurrection of the dead. Remember they came to Jesus and they were asking the question because Jesus did believe like the Pharisees, Jesus did agree with the Pharisees, you know, in other words, the Pharisees were right, but they shared the belief of the resurrection of the dead. And what they tried to do, well, they always would make the Pharisees, the Sadducees look like a fool all the time. And the Pharisees wouldn't know how to respond to the Sadducees when they would bring up certain issues concerning the resurrection of the dead. They would be dumbfounded. And it's especially because nowhere in the five books of Moses did it ever, Genesis, Exodus, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteronomy, nowhere in those foundational books, did it ever directly state anything about resurrection of the dead? And so therefore, if it was not found there, the Sadducees rejected it. They said, no such things. If it's not found in the five books, we don't go with it according to doctrine. And so that's why they did not believe in such things as spirits and the resurrection, things of that nature. But nevertheless, here's the point. So they tried to make a fool to confound Jesus too, because he also shared this same belief uh, like the Pharisees in the resurrection of the dead. And that's why they came to Jesus saying, well, there was this man that was with us and, and he had a wife, these seven brothers. And so the first brother died and there was no children. Second brother died. There was no children on and on and on to the seventh brother. And finally they all died. And so now since you guys say that is you, Jesus, as well as you Pharisees say that there is a resurrection of the dead. Well, in the resurrection of the dead, since it's supposed to be one, whose wife shall she be since they all had her to marry? And that's when Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the power of God and you surely don't understand the scriptures. But anyway, we're not going to get so much into Jesus's explanation. But what I wanted to show you was the foundation for their reasons for not believing in the resurrection of the dead. All right. But now, now that we've stated that part, here is where the contradiction comes. Or in other words, here is where the Sadducees were completely wrong in their assumption that there was no scriptural reference for the resurrection of the dead. What do you mean? As early as the book of Genesis, and here we are in chapter 13, when God is restating his promise to Abram, right? Not Abraham yet, but same guy. He's restating that promise Notice what he says. He says, I will give the promised land 
to you and your descendants. And once again, the point that we made was what happened when Abram died, all he owned was the cave of Machpelah. So here is the point. Is there contradiction in the scripture? Because if that's the case, God lied. God made a promise that he cannot keep. But that is the whole thing of scripture, isn't it? Number one, God is not like man that he ever lies. And number two, he never makes a promise that he cannot keep. And he is not intending to keep. So therefore, when God made this, and remember, he knows all things. He knows Abraham is going to die at 175 years old. He knows Abraham is only going to die owning only, only that cave. Then why make the promise? Because God has an intent of something further for Abram. So let me talk about it. So therefore, here is where the principle is developed concerning resurrection of the dead. If God makes you a promise, if he makes you a promise, God will keep his promise no matter what, even if he has to bring you from the dead. Notice what I said. If he makes a promise, he will keep. God is absolutely faithful. He will keep his promise to you, even if that means he must bring you back to life and do all the things that he said he would do. So therefore, if God promised Abraham, Abram, the promised land, but he only died with what? The cave of Machpelah, not receiving the promised land, then God is under obligation. He is what? Under obligation by his own word to bring him back to life so that he can give him the things that he promised, a resurrection. All right? So therefore, what do we see? There is resurrection that is taught in the scripture this early even though it is not directly stated. Nevertheless, it is clearly implied because what happens? He dies. And, and not only that, and I'm going to say this as my final point and move on. Did Abraham, Abram, come to know this? Everything that I just said about this resurrection, did Abram come to know this? The answer is yes, Abram believed in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, what do I mean? Let's go back. After God had tried Abram, you know, we go through all of these different things, the trial of Abram with the stuff with Hagar. And when the trial of Abram, uh, uh, when he goes down again with the, the different Philistines and people of that nature. But the whole point is as his faith in God grows, and finally, God gives him after 25 years of testing, he gives him the son of promise. That is Isaac. We find later on as Isaac was being, uh, 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 as he was growing up, Isaac had grown up. All of a sudden, God began to speak to Abraham once again. I'm in Genesis 22. As God spoke to Abraham, notice what he said. Go to a place that I will show you there, and I want you to take your son, your only son. The reason why I call him the only son was simply because he was the son of promise. That is Isaac. 
and offer him as a burnt sacrifice to me. Now, if you're going to offer a person as a burnt sacrifice, the first thing you do is you take a knife, you slit the throat, bleed them to death, bleed them to death. You capture the blood. And after you capture the blood, take the body, throw it on a fire, pour the blood, burn it, pour the blood on it. You burn up. In other words, you kill them dead. You kill them. So what happened? The Bible said when God had tested Abraham, he rose early in the morning. No hesitation. And I don't want to get to too much of that part, but there was no hesitation. And he also took Abraham, took with him Isaac. He also took the stuff, some of the stuff, but not all of the stuff. He took everything except the goat or the lamb. But And Isaac himself noticed that particular thing was missing. But nevertheless, he took the stuff that was needed to do the sacrificial work. And he also took along with him the servants, some of his servants. Now, it was three days journey to get to that particular place at Mount Moriah where Abram, would, where God would show him this is the place because this is the same place where God himself uh, uh, 2,000 years later would offer up his own son. But nevertheless, so he took him to that place three days later. And the wonderful thing I like about that, guys, is Abram had plenty of time to change his mind, but he didn't. His faith remained strong. And so he took him to that place. God led him. Abram went to the place. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing that you must see. Isaac saw, he said, look, dad, he said, I see we've done this sacrifice stuff many times. We got the wood and, and all of that. He said, he, the knife and all of that stuff like that. He said, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the stuff? You know, the goat. And he said, my son, God will provide a sacrifice, a lamb for himself. But nevertheless, so Isaac noticed it, but no, we're getting ready to go. And all of a sudden, Abram makes this statement. But before I do that, let me say this. Who is Abraham taking? Isaac, the son of promise and the Bible. That's why God himself said, take Isaac, your son, your only son. That is, if Isaac dies, the promise dies with him from all of that stuff of Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and everything else that God said about the seed and the people and the nation and all that stuff, it dies with Isaac. So if Isaac is brought to an end, the promise is brought to an end. And Abraham knew that he knew that, but now, so that's the case. So now you got that. All right. But remember, God still made him a promise. So what took place? Abraham spoke to his servants and he said to his servants, he said, my son and I are going up to the mountain to worship, to sacrifice. We're going up to the mountain to sacrifice. And notice what he said. But remember, what did the sacrifice entail? God said, kill Isaac, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And notice what Abram said to his servant. He said, my son and I are going up to sacrifice. And guess what? My son and I are returning back. We will come back. Me and I. And he had every mindset to put Isaac to death. But what? But wait, wait a minute. What, and that's why the book of Hebrews say, 
because he knew that God would raise him from the dead. So here's my point again. And we are now satisfied with the principle. Did Abraham? Yes. The scriptures taught clearly and early in a resurrection of the dead. And not only that, Abraham himself believed in the resurrection of the dead. All right, enough of that. Let's finish this section, close out this video. So let's go on now. Now we just proved resurrection of the dead. And now you see what that principally is found in the scripture and how early it is spoken of. All right, verse 16, back to Genesis. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. That speaks for itself. And God says you will have many descendants. Many, 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 many. So verse 17, arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it, notice again, I will give it to you. So then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So in response, so he goes, he says, all right, take a walk through the landing, take a walk again, look it around and put one thing in your mind, in your heart, in your conscience. I will give this land to you. So therefore God has to resurrect Abraham in order to do the things that he promised to do. And in the very end, verse 18, Abraham basically came back right back, right before, remember when that famine had hit and, <laughs> and he left the land, he came right back to the place where he was in the first place. He moved his tent to the Oaks of Mamre. Remember the Oaks of Mamre, the Terebinth, or basically we basically understand this as a worship center for the Canaanites, a worship center, worship of idols, not the true God, for the Canaanites. And that's why we can also see Abraham erecting his system of worship, an alternative system of worship, or in other words, worship of the true God. He built an altar to the Lord. That is a public worship in the midst of the Canaanites. And there he fulfills the command of God in Genesis chapter 12, when God commands Abraham to be a blessing. All right, guys. Catch you next time as we get into the one of the first wars ever talked about in the scripture. Catch you next time. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? Subscribe now.